Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. Later in the show, we'll be finding out how to save a life, from doctors and paramedics performing open chest surgery in the street to helping people recover from severe and life-altering brain injuries. Plus, in the news this week, a real invisibility cloak, how caffeine gives us a boost, and why scientists need you to quiz your dog. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. I don't know about you, but I certainly can't start my mornings without several mugs of strong coffee. And now researchers have discovered just how much of a boost caffeine gives us. Surprisingly, drinking it at night may affect you more than you might think. Greer Jackson went for a cuppa with study author John O'Neill. Sleep is regulated by two processes. One of them is a homeostatic drive. The longer you've been without sleep, the more you need to sleep. But the other part of when we sleep is the circadian rhythm. And the circadian rhythm controls when we're most likely to go to sleep. And so the first aspect of how caffeine works has been studied quite intensively over the last few decades. But no one had really addressed the extent to which the body clock is affected by caffeine. And so that's what we looked at. And how did you go about looking at that? Over in the States at the University of Colorado in Boulder, my colleague Ken Wright took several individuals and placed them in constant conditions for 49 days. And what he did was give them either a placebo pill or caffeine and then look at how the melatonin rhythm was affected by caffeine. Now, just to tell you about melatonin, it's the main hormone of night. It makes you feel sleepy. And what Ken observed was that in response to um, a caffeine pill equivalent to a double espresso at three hours before their normal bedtime, that surge in melatonin is delayed by nearly an hour. What's the effect of that then? You just go to sleep an hour later? Effectively, yes. And the consequence of that is that left to your own devices, you would sleep an hour later. But of course, most people have to get up for work. And so the real consequence is that you just simply get less sleep. So this is in the group studies in people. But you, in your lab, you've looked at this at the cellular level. 
That's absolutely right. So the really fascinating thing for me is that this biological rhythm in humans is something that's present in every single cell of the body. And so I could take a scraping of your skin cells and grow them in a Petri dish and they would continue to have this 24-hour rhythm. And so that really gave us a handle to get at the mechanism of what's going on in a person when they take um, caffeine or when they drink a coffee. Because, of course, all of these same target proteins that are uh, are bound by caffeine, things like adenosine receptors and phosphodiesterases, all of those are present in pretty much every human cell type. It allows us to really pharmacologically dissect the mode of action of caffeine upon the cellular circadian rhythm. And this mechanism that you're talking about, the proteins binding with the caffeine, that wasn't known before? So in the context of sleep and arousal, it had been accepted in the sleep field for quite a long time. But the thing that had not been uh, considered previously really was that caffeine affects the circadian clock in cells, again through adenosine receptors. So we could rule out all of the other suggested targets of caffeine. As a frequent coffee drinker myself, what sort of message should I be taking away from this, that I shouldn't be drinking coffee after 3 p.m.? I think it depends on your natural, um, what we call chronotype. So your chronotype is your innate tendency to get up at a particular time. And so there's uh, some wonderful research done by Till Ronenberg and Russell Foster showing that as we age, um, going from toddlers through to our late teens and early 20s, we naturally get later and later and later. But then after that, we get earlier and earlier and earlier again. Um, so that, you know, a toddler and uh, someone in their 70s is naturally waking up very, very early. Um, so you should have kids in your 70s, is that what? <laughs> or you should have grandparents, yeah. But within that, there is obviously an enormous variation. And so something that's potentially useful is that if you know you're a lark and yet you have to do a job that involves you behaving more like an owl, it might be useful to you to take caffeine at an intelligent time to actually delay your um, circadian clock by just enough that you can get up a little bit later and stay up that bit later. To do so, so as to avoid the uh, loss of sleep because of course we know that not getting enough sleep associates very strongly with um, obesity some metabolic disorders cardiovascular disease and so that's something that you really want to watch out for but certainly if you're naturally a lark and you want to stay up later then uh, intelligent use of caffeine might be able to help with that. Well, I'm a night owl and I'm uh, hoping that I can also keep intelligently supping away on my coffee as much as I like. John O'Neill from the MRC Laboratory for Molecular Biology and he and Ken published that work this week in the journal Science Translational Medicine. You see, that's where I'm going wrong. I'm not intelligently using the stuff. I'm just chronically using the stuff about <laughs> 24-7 and that's why I feel absolutely exhausted the whole time. Now, scientists in Ireland may have found a new way to stop an individual developing Alzheimer's disease. This condition robs sufferers of their memories and their ability to care for themselves. And worryingly, the incidence of Alzheimer's disease, which currently affects millions of people already, is set to double by 2050. Alzheimer's occurs due to a build-up in the brain of a toxic material called amyloid beta, and this kills nerve cells. Reducing the levels of amyloid beta in the brain should, therefore, cut the risk of Alzheimer's developing. Researcher Matthew Campbell has found a way to do this by deactivating two molecules called claudin-5 and occludin, which control the blood-brain barrier. Temporarily disarming this barrier allows the beta amyloid to be carried away harmlessly in the bloodstream. <laughs> 
in our brains at the moment, we are producing amyloid beta and it's able to get out of the brain via the blood-brain barrier. Something is happening in Alzheimer's disease that is preventing this material from getting out of the brain. In patients who have Alzheimer's disease, this material builds up to such an extent that it eventually begins to kill brain cells. And if they are the cells that allow you to make memories, that allow you to store memories, well, then those memories will be gone forever and they won't come back. What do you think is governing that process then and why does it go wrong? In all our blood vessels in our body, there are cells that we term endothelial cells. There are specific what we term receptors on the endothelial cells. And what these receptors do is they allow for material to be moved from brain to blood and blood back into the brain. Now, in aging, we lose the potential to be able to to transfer this material from brain into blood and, and blood into brain. And some people, for whatever reason, we still aren't fully certain, are more susceptible to these processes slowing down. So what have you found now that might influence that process? What we've discovered for the first time is that this molecule amyloid beta itself can open up these junctions between endothelial cells and facilitate its own movement from brain back into blood. How does the amyloid beta open up the blood-brain barrier? In effect, what we've discovered is that amyloid beta can itself decrease the levels of these two components. One of them is called claudin-5, the other one is called occludin. And these components hold endothelial cells together very, very tightly. And if we can now go ahead and design drugs that specifically target these molecules, we could lead to a a therapy that could allow for the clearance of amyloid beta from brain to blood in the context of Alzheimer's disease. Summarising that then, the brain makes amyloid beta... Normally, this would exit harmlessly into the bloodstream. It probably is doing that, you're saying, because it stimulates the blood-brain barrier to open up a little bit. For some reason, this process goes wrong in people who are destined to develop Alzheimer's disease. But if we could crowbar open the blood-brain barrier again, we might be able to encourage this stuff to come back out of the brain it wouldn't accumulate and that should stop someone developing Alzheimer's disease at such a high rate as they would have done. Exactly. So what we need to do when we're thinking of therapies is to get in preemptively before the damage has gone to such an extent that the cells that we're trying to preserve have actually died. How do you know this is going to work? We have mice that have genes that cause Alzheimer's disease. So we've shown in these animals that when we control Claudin-5 and occludin levels, Over time, we can decrease the levels of amyloid beta in their brains and lead to better cognitive performance in these mice as well. We also recently have data from a non-human primate study whereby we've shown that the molecule that we use that that targets these molecules, claudin-5 and occludin, is very, very safe when it's administered into a a vein of a a larger animal such as a non-human primate. So it gives us a lot of hope that, that we're onto something here, that this could be a new form of therapy for Alzheimer's. Is there not, though, a potential risk of there being a problem because the blood-brain barrier is being rendered deficient or defective by what you're doing? It's a really, really good point, and it's something we have to be very, very acutely aware of as we move towards clinical deployment of this. But we've dosed some animals for up to a year with a material that modulates the blood-brain barrier, and there's very, very limited effects in the animals. The safety profile of this approach is very, very strong. So we have a lot of hope that it is actually quite safe. It's very encouraging, isn't it? That was Matthew Campbell from Trinity College Dublin describing the study that he's published this week in Science Advances. Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin? 
The space boffins are joined by two astronauts and the space scientist who knows how to rock a beard. Who else could it be but Rosetta Project scientist Matt Taylor to fill us in on the next stage of Europe's comet-chasing mission. We also hear from NASA astronaut Katie Coleman discussing sustainability and the future of our planet and former ESA astronaut Thomas Reiter on the future of the European Astronaut Corps. Add astronomer Robert Massey and you have the latest Space Boffins podcast in partnership with Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and me, Kat Arney. Now, another week, another story about diet and cancer risk. And this time, it's research suggesting that olive oil can cut breast cancer risk. Yinka Ebo, health information manager at the charity Breast Cancer Now, who weren't involved in the study, explained more about what the researchers found. So what the study found was that women who were eating the Mediterranean diet and supplemented with extra virgin olive oil, not just any olive oil, but extra virgin Extra virgin, yeah. um, Had a lower risk of developing breast cancer, over 60% lower risk of developing breast cancer, compared to the women who were just given dietary advice to decrease their fat intake. A 60% reduction in breast cancer risk, that sounds like a lot. So we had over 4,000 women, and they were followed for about 4.8 years, At the end of that, there were 35 cases of breast cancer. That's not really a lot, and that's a short length of time too. Exactly. When we're looking to understand the links between lifestyle or diet and the risk of disease, we would want to see many more people included in those studies, hundreds of thousands, and many more cases to be able to really tell if there's a true link between how we're living our lives and our risk of developing disease. So this is a very, very small study. And in the context of the wider research, other studies that have looked at this area in the past have been inconsistent. So this study alone doesn't really tell us much about the links between diet and breast cancer risk. Are there any things in the diet that we do know reduce the risk of breast cancer? There seem to be lots of stories in the media saying, oh, this increases or decreases your risk of various types of cancer. And should we take these, apologies for the pun, with a pinch of salt? It's really tricky to try and pinpoint any individual nutrients to the risk of developing breast cancer. The way these studies are carried out, they will pull out a particular chemical or compound from that food. They will use normally a very high dose of that compound, and then they might see results in in the lab in a Petri dish. We aren't Petri dishes, so to be able to pinpoint one particular superfood, in quotes, or nutrient to the risk of developing breast cancer is, or any cancer really is very, very difficult. In terms of breast cancer, there isn't really any clear evidence of any particular type of food that might increase your risk. There's some evidence around fat intake, but reducing your fat intake anyway will help you in terms of other diseases as well. Inka Ibo from Breast Cancer Now. And that study appeared this week in the Journal of the American Medical Association Internal Medicine. Now you see it, now you don't. And that's because a coating that can make an object appear to disappear has been developed by scientists in the US. Science writer Mark Peplow has been taking a look at how it works, assuming, that is, he can find it. 
It's Harry Potter time again, Chris. Researchers in California have created a tiny invisibility cloak, which seems to be more effective at concealing objects than previous attempts to make these sorts of things. Because scientists have been working on invisibility cloaks since the sort of mid-2000s. Many of them depend on metamaterials. As light passes through them, it actually bends back on itself almost as if it was being reflected by a mirror. So in theory, you cover an object with these materials and light from behind the object is bent around to the front. So it looks as though the object isn't there anymore. So what was the problem with those particular formulations? Uh, They tend to be relatively bulky compared to the object that they're concealing. Um, They're really difficult to make and they're very hard to scale up to work for everyday objects. Crucially, they change the phase of the light coming through. So if you think of a light wave and the sort of peaks and trough going up and down in that exiting light wave, peaks have become troughs and vice versa. Now, it's pretty easy for instruments to see that phase change. So if you really wanted to detect something that was being cloaked, it would be very easy to spot it because you can see this characteristic phase change. But these scientists at Berkeley say they have a solution to actually many of these problems. They made a small 3D object, which was actually only the width of a like a fine blonde hair. It was about 36 microns across. And then they covered it in thin layers of gold and magnesium fluoride and topped it off with tiny pillars of gold that sit proud of the surface, just about 30 nanometers high. Now, these act as antennae that reroute light around the object. Crucially, they also ensure that the phase of the light is unchanged. So the result, abracadabra, the object disappears. Does it really disappear? I mean, it sounds like it could be ideal if you have a head of hair with one hair on it and it's, you know, you've got, <laughs> you've got your roots showing or something. But uh, no, could you scale this? Could you crucially make a big version of this to do something practical? Well, that's one of the things that they're suggesting is different about their technique. They made them using electron beam lithography, which is widely used in the semiconductor industry to make computer chips. They point out that you can do this sort of nano fabrication on meter long sheets now. And their calculations, although they haven't done it yet, suggest that you don't have to directly coat the object with this cloak. You could make a freestanding cloak that could be draped over it. For the moment, one of the main drawbacks is that this only works well with red light. So, again, that's a key thing that they are going to be working on in the future to try and make this work across the visible spectrum. Why does it work at all? And why does it get around that problem of of not flipping the light waves back to front like the previous tries that people have had at making these things it's because it's bending the light in a slightly different way the thing with the nano antennae is that the light is interacting with them and it's causing if you like ripples in the electrical charge around the surface of these uh, nano antennae and those ripples are what are then producing a beam of light which sort of shoots out so it's not it's a slightly different process of channeling the light it's if you like it's translating the light from uh, being light to being an electrical wave on the surface and then back out again as light do you think they will be able to surmount the color issue i presume this comes down to how big those antennae are on the surface because a red light wave is much bigger than a smaller blue light wave so can they get round that 
That's exactly right, Chris. What they might have to do, for example, is tailor different sizes of nano antennae so that you're having some with one shape, some a little bigger, some a little smaller, so that they can cope with different wavelengths of of light to have the same effect overall. It's not impossible to do. It makes it more complex to make this. So it remains to be seen whether they can do that or not. So you can hide pretty much anything you like, just as long as the background colour is red. This is clearly a work in progress. That was science writer Mark Peplow, who was taking a look at the latest in cloaking devices. The work has just been unveiled by Zhang Zhang in the journal Science. Woof, 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 woof. Attention dogs. Dogs have become citizen scientists this week. Citizen science is a way for researchers to collect lots of data quickly and cost-effectively by asking members of the public to do it for them. Now Evan McLean is using this approach to get inside the minds of domestic dogs by asking their owners, like our own Joanne Kerr, to set them simple tests and send him the results. So in this game, um, you would show the dog a piece of food and you would hide it in one of two places in front of them. So they visually they've seen where the food is, but then you distract the dog and you move that piece of food over to another location. Uh, and then you very simply give them a choice between the two locations in, in terms of where they want to search. So if dogs rely on their memory, they should search where they saw the object disappear. But if it's their sense of smell that's driving their behavior, um, then they would search for the food in, it, in its new location, just basically using their nose to solve the problem. And what we find in that context is uh, something that surprises a lot of people, which is that dogs aren't actually using their nose in this context. They're using their vision uh, and their memory, and they tend to search where they saw the food last. I couldn't wait to go home and try this, so I've roped my boyfriend in to see what our dog does when we put her through this test. Do you want to try this? Come on then. Can you now distract her for a bit while I switch these over? Okay, go. We tried this three times and each time she went to where she'd seen me put the treats, not where she could clearly smell if she wanted to, where it had actually gone. There is no debate that dogs have incredibly sensitive noses, but what we find is that actually dogs rely on other senses very much. And there are lots of cases where dogs will prioritize visual information over olfactory information. Do you know why that might be? If you think about vision and olfaction, olfaction is a great sense for trying to sort of put together the past when there's no immediate clues about the way the environment is. But if you're in the present moment, there's there's nothing better than vision. Yeah, so I suppose it does sort of seem as though they're thinking along the same lines as what we would as humans. That's right. If we only had that sense of smell, I think we'd probably behave in similar ways. How did the citizen science results compare with your lab experiments? This was the the main thing that we wanted to look at in this paper, because I think the concern that everybody had was, well, sure, we can ask all these dog owners to play these games, Mm -hmm. but they're probably going to be making up their data. They're probably going to be doing things to try and make their dog look good. We've had questionnaires about people that sign up for dog experiments, and every dog that gets signed up, the people think they're in the 99th percentile. (laughs) So we know there's a a real bias uh, in in terms of people's perceptions of their their own dogs. And and what we found is that actually the data are incredibly comparable and, and surprisingly so. So the answers that we get through citizen science and the answers that we get in the lab differ by one to two percentage points. So it's amazingly similar. Evan McLean from Duke University talking about his lab experiments, which were published this week in PLOS One. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. And now we're heading into the main section of our programme and asking, what does it take to save a life. 
from the moment an emergency call is made, doctors and paramedics are in a race against the clock. Every second counts, meaning medical pioneers are continuously trying to push back the boundaries of what's possible, from open chest surgery on the roadside to using a balloon to stop internal bleeding. Greg Jackson went to see some of these pioneering treatments in action with Dr Gareth Davies, who's the medical director at London's Air Ambulance. In London area, there are literally several thousand 999 calls every day. And in amongst those thousands of 999 calls, there's probably five, maybe six, that require the the specific interventions and skills of the air ambulance team. And one of our big tasks is sieving all of those calls to find the needle in a haystack where the patients are so critically injured they are literally in the dying process. Is that what distinguishes you from a normal ambulance to, I notice you've got advanced trauma team on Mm. on your vehicle, is that what distinguishes you too? I think that we have additional skills, additional equipment um, that we bring to the patient side so we effectively try and bring what's inside a hospital right out into the pre-hospital arena where we can start those treatments as early as possible. And I suppose once you receive that dispatch, the clock is ticking to get to them as fast as possible. Yeah. For trauma patients, time is of the essence. Seconds and minutes really count. So part of the car checks is taking all our equipment out of the boot and checking it, make sure it's all absolutely there. There's no point in turning up and waiting for one piece of kit which you don't have. There's a lot of it. There is a lot of it. Yeah, it's a bit of a TARDIS, actually. I left Gareth and Richard, our paramedic and driver for this evening, to it, whilst they checked over what seemed like hundreds of bits of kit. They really did have everything except the kitchen sink. And they wouldn't have needed it anyway because they had sterilisation wipes. Within an hour, the first 999 dispatch came through. A message popped up on Gareth's tablet, alerting him to the possible injuries that the patient may have. Interestingly, though, Gareth didn't tell Richard the nature of the dispatch. This is to avoid any possible biases that paramedics may or may not have. For instance, Richard might be inclined to drive faster if he knew a child's life was at stake. Okay, so good, we're going to go left, left here. 25 minutes later, we arrived at the scene. To protect the confidentiality of the patient, I turned my recorder off, and under the same line of thought, I equally can't really describe what I saw. Not that I saw an awful lot, because... I rather embarrassingly fainted and found myself in an ambulance on the way to hospital, which rather scuppered my plans for this report. But fortunately, I managed to dial up Gareth later after I had uh, recovered. Will she just appear in the earphone? Yeah, it's eyes. Oh, she's there, actually. I'm here. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) Hello, Gareth. How are you? (laughs) I'm all right. How are you is more the point. Are you okay? You've recovered from your trauma? (laughs) Yes, thank you. (laughs) I was rather embarrassed about that. So, um, so thank you so much for taking such good 
care of me. Well, I'm glad you're in Back at the scene, I was amazed at not only how calm and collected everyone was, but also how everyone's attitude was extremely soothing. There was a general sense of, everything's going to be okay, don't worry. Despite the fact that doctors like Gareth are sent to scenes just like these because the patient is already dying. Our patients are entering the dying process and they may do that through several ways. It may be as simple as they don't have an airway. Without oxygen, all of the cells in the body will eventually die. Sometimes patients may have problems with their circulation. That might be the heart. Uh, Or there may be damage to blood vessels where the blood is simply leaking out. There is a part of the dying process that we haven't touched upon, and that is when patients are injured, they release chemicals, and those chemicals affect how cells utilise oxygen. They affect how the blood clots. So there is this sort of hidden part of the disease which no one can physically see, but we know is going on. So uh, we can do it at a macroscopic level uh, with operations and what have you. But what's going on at a chemical level, we are beginning to understand and we're beginning to treat in some ways, but there's still a long way to go. I'm conscious about keeping this patient anonymous, but what can you tell us about the situation? In patients that have fallen from uh, uh, height, they may be unconscious, they may damage their limbs, they may damage their pelvis, and uh, inside the pelvis there is a, a myriad of blood vessels, and the minute those blood vessels get damaged, they can ooze uh, into the um, spaces within the pelvis uh, with what is basically uncontrollable hemorrhage because you can't press it like you can press a cut on the skin they can bleed to death from that but we can initiate procedures such as reboa which is a new innovation where we can put a balloon in the top of the leg float it up into the aorta the main artery uh, and close off that blood vessel temporarily to try and control some of this hemorrhage and i assume this is something that a paramedic wouldn't be able to do this is something you as a doctor can do Yeah, some of the procedures are literally operations that would normally take place in the emergency department or in theatre. So it's pretty high-end stuff. I was going to say, it sounds pretty groundbreaking because what you're describing is surgery on the street. Yeah, there are circumstances. For example, a patient that may have been stabbed and they have injuries to the heart, we can literally open the chest and then try and reanimate the heart by doing internal cardiac massage. Once you have stabilised your patient, what happens next? As soon as we have established that position, we will always make our way to hospital. We put in what's called a code red call, which uh, identifies to the hospital that they are quite literally bleeding to death. That was Dr Gareth Davis talking with Greer Jackson. And so now that everything has been done for the patient that can be in the field and they're en route to hospital, well, what happens next? How do A&E, the Accident and Emergency Department, prepare for a patient that's coming in bleeding to death? Dr Adam Brooks is the director of the Major Trauma Centre at Nottingham. He's with us. Adam, how do you anticipate and then deal with someone coming in in that situation? The first thing we do when we get a code red call from the paramedics is uh, activate the the trauma team so that we get all the members of the trauma team down to the emergency departments uh, before the patient arrives. 
And when the code red, we need the most senior doctors that we can get. So that's consultant anaesthetist, consultant surgeon, consultant from the emergency department, all there waiting for the patient. Everyone gets a job and uh, we uh, worked with lots of, uh, lots of protocols, but we all task allocate everybody to a specific thing that they need to do so that we all work together seamlessly. The other thing, obviously, we've got to do when, before the patient arrives is get the uh, appropriate equipment. And some of that depends on the information we've received from the, the pre-hospital paramedics. But we may need to uh, be prepared to do surgery. We may need to be prepared to uh, put tourniquets on limbs, anesthetize the patient, or move them very rapidly to CT scan to get further imaging or straight to the operating room. And if you do have to take them to theatre, what would you be aiming to do in theatre to save their life? If we're taking a code red patient to theatre, that what we're aiming to do is stop the bleeding. And that's after the airway and breathing, that's the, the, the things that kills you. And we still have far too many patients who bleed to death before we can intervene, which is why that time frame from injury through to definitively stopping the bleeding, definitive hemorrhage control is so important. So we get the patient to theatre, we need to decide where we need to go to stop the bleeding. We may be doing that as surgeons, but we may also be doing it alongside interventional radiology colleagues, that's x-ray doctors, who can use techniques, float balloons, put wires into blood vessels to also stop the bleeding. But we need to decide, do we open the chest? Do we open the abdomen? Where is the most compelling source of bleeding uh, that we need to address first? Why does severe haemorrhage lead to a person being at high risk of death? If you've not got blood to pump around, you're not carrying any oxygen around to the cells. If you're not carrying any oxygen around to the cells, the heart will fail, the brain will fail. So once you've got control of the bleeding, what do you do next? That sometimes may take, may take a couple of goes. Um, working closely with the anaesthesia team, we've been resuscitating the patient with blood and blood products, essentially the equivalent of giving whole blood, but in its constituent parts. Because of that and because our, our aim is really to stop bleeding, the next thing we need to do is stop contamination. Certainly if we're in the, in the abdomen and the bowel's been injured, we don't want that bowel content or faeces to be swelling around the abdomen. So we can staple off parts of bowel, we leave them stapled, we don't join them up. And we'll quite often in the most severely injured patients not even close the abdomen. We'll do a temporary dressing, leave the stapled off ends of bowel in the patient put a temporary dressing on the abdomen and then the patient continues their resuscitation through in the intensive care unit. And the reason we do that is that the patient will have reached their physiological reserve. We can't push anymore. We can't do anymore. We need to get the, give them some reserve back. So we need to pause our surgery. And really now over the last five or 10 years, surgeons involved in trauma have been concentrating on the physiology rather than just the anatomy. And how have practices in acute resuscitation, like you've been describing, changed in the last five or ten years? What have we learned that we used to do that's less effective and that if we do different things now, we'll actually save more lives? We used to give patients clear fluid, saline or another clear fluid called Hartman solution, to give them the fluid because we thought they'd lost blood, so we're going to give them some fluid. And we don't do that anymore. For the most severely injured patients, we need to give blood and blood products in a ratio about one to one so that they have this chance of clotting. So what's happened over the last five or six years is there's been a number of incremental changes. So a change in the way we operate on physiology rather than anatomy, a change in the way that we resuscitate, going to blood uh, and blood products, uh, a change in the timing of what we do, doing th things 
in small parts. And because of that, over that period of time, the chance of death from from haemorrhage in most severely injured patients has nearly halved. Wonderful. And at, at the point that you have stabilised the person, that's when you hand them on to the intensive care doctors and they take them out of the accident emergency department and they will then look after them there where they have lots of different specialists who can come in and, and deal with them in that very, very specialist environment. Yeah, that's correct. Most of the big surgery will be done in the operating room. So we may have to start in the emergency department, then move to the operating room. We stabilise the patient, we work with our anaesthetic colleagues, and then we'll transfer that patient to the intensive care unit where resuscitation will continue, but in a slightly different way, trying to give them back that physiological reserve uh, and to continue uh, what's been started at the roadside. Adam, thank you very much for making that so clear. That's Dr Adam Brooks, and he is from Nottingham. Kat? Well, unfortunately, sometimes these life-saving procedures aren't enough, and there comes a time when a decision has to be made to withdraw treatment and allow a person to die peacefully. We're joined now by Dr Ari Urkel. He's a doctor in the intensive care unit at Addenbrooke's Hospital, and we wanted to talk about what is this moment? How do you know, as a doctor, what sort of things are you looking for when the decision needs to be made? Do we turn off someone's life support? So these are incredibly difficult and very emotive um, thoughts and and concepts. Um, Intensive care is all about keeping the body alive while treatment uh, succeeds, hopefully, uh, to to sort out the underlying disease, not just trauma, but um, other life-threatening infections and various other diseases. But sometimes the disease is too severe and um, things become futile. Under those circumstances, That's relatively straightforward. If it's clearly futile and the patient isn't going to survive, then um, we shouldn't proceed. It can also be quite difficult situations when, in fact, actually what we may be doing is going against the wishes of the patient if we're not careful. So, for example, some patients may arrive at a state of acute or life-threatening illness after a long period of chronic illness. And generally speaking, in medicine, one of the, the, the key priority for us as doctors is to think about the autonomy of the patient, what it is the patient would want. Generally speaking, we would, we would never offer or enforce a treatment onto someone that they didn't want. The difficulty in intensive care, of course, is that many of our patients, in fact, most of our patients are unconscious, either because of the disease or as a necessary treatment uh, inducing coma. And so what we then have to do is think a little bit about trying to understand what it is that um, what patients would find acceptable uh, in terms of their treatment. It's pretty tough being critically ill, uh, and it's not necessarily for everybody. Now, The only way we can really find that out is to speak to family, try and understand that particular patient and formulate an opinion of of, uh, what they were like, what what they would want, what they would not want. And in terms of the the clinical signs and symptoms that you're looking for, are there particular things where you can say, I think we should stop now? I mean, there are some situations that are probably in the minority where, where it becomes very obvious. So, for example, brainstem death. We know there is no recovery from brainstem death and therefore we really have to stop. Um, this person has, has died. Their heart may be beating. We're getting oxygen into them because of the life support system, but they cannot recover. But those are probably the minority. One of the difficulties in medicine is it's often very difficult to know exactly what the final outcome is going to be. So this can pose us with real sort of clinical and, and ethical ethical decisions. And the, the main thing that we have to consider is what what that patient would have wanted if we could possibly ask them. And so once that decision has been reached that you know we, we've come to the end of the road and it, it's time for this, this person's treatment to be stopped, what actually would happen then? What sort of processes? Um, I'm 
assuming that it's not just like you pull the plug out of the wall. Right. What actually happens? No, not at all. Uh, and I think that's, that's a really important point. So the way I like to look at it is really we're, we're changing our attention from what well, we've, we've been trying to prolong life. We've come to the point at which we've realised that actually what we're doing is we're prolonging death instead or prolonging the dying process. And then what we really want to do is change our attention from from that physiological support, that life support, to thinking very about hard about how we can keep people comfortable in the last minutes or hours or sometimes days um, of their life. So it's very much about changing from from technology and keeping the keeping the patient alive to palliative care and and, and controlling symptoms and, and, and keeping them as comfortable as possible. And to sort of end on a slightly more positive note, obviously we do hear a lot about stories of organ donation when people have ended up in, in this situation and have become organ donors. Tell me a little bit about that process. How does that decision get made and, and what happens and, and why is it so important? Yeah, I mean, for, for a lot of people, um, the decision to donate their organs is one that, that may give some meaning to a death and, and actually can you know, uh, improve the quality of lives and, and survival of, of a great number of people. Um, so the organ donation originally uh, arose from uh, in, in the sort of brainstem dead uh, patients as, as donors. These are patients in whom, whilst the, the brain has, has been irreversibly destroyed or, or damaged, the heart is still beating and with life support, oxygen can get into the lungs and uh, the organs are still well perfused and, and, and survive very well, maybe very healthy. In recent times, there have been huge advances in so-called donation after cardiac death. The problem with the heart stopping is, of course, at the same time that it stops blood getting to the various organs and the organs then also subsequently die. But in situations such as in intensive care where life support is being switched off and we have some idea about the timing of the heart stopping, uh, it may be possible to um, organise things in such a way that organ donation may still be possible. And and sort of very briefly, to encourage people to become organ donors or to think about it and look into the process, what, what should people do if they think, yeah, if the worst should happen, I want to help? There are lots of resources out there, and particularly the web has a huge number of different resources. And I think more than anything, the, the most important thing is to uh, make your, your wishes known, discuss it with your friends and families. And if you do feel that you uh, would like to donate your organs, then um, ensure that you're on the uh, donation register. We've had a tweet in from listener Ed Wilson and he raises a really interesting question. Are organs ever unacceptable for donation? For example, if people have been given certain drugs or treatments? I would say that's almost never a consideration. Um, whilst it is true that some drugs can cause organ damage, that's almost never severe enough to preclude uh, organ donation. Are there any circumstances that do, say sort of certain diseases or illnesses that would some diseases such as cancer um, can prevent people donating some of their organs. But again, everything's dealt with on an individual basis. So it's a matter of looking at each person as an individual. Hopefully lots of people will be encouraged to become organ donors and also talk about their wishes with their families. As you said, that's Dr. Ari Urkel from Addenbrooke's Hospital's Intensive Care Unit. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Naked Scientist this week with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. Thankfully, pioneering medical treatments mean that more and more people are actually surviving serious trauma, but being discharged from hospital isn't the end of the story. As we've heard, it can take months or even years to recover from or adapt to the consequences of severe injuries, particularly where that injury involves the brain, as Greg Jackson found out when she went to Headway Cambridgeshire, a charity that helps to support families and people who've suffered a brain injury. My name's Colin Shepherd. I uh, suffered a brain hemorrhage in 2001 I remember going down to a shop to buy a newspaper 
and I remember collapsing on the floor. Next thing I knew, I woke up in neuro critical care. It was strange. I didn't no idea where I was or what had happened. I had no idea what a brain hemorrhage was. When I uh, was told I was paralysed, it hit me like a ton of bricks. The first reaction was, how was I going to cope at home? That was the first thing I remember. Concern for my wife. Could she manage? And was there anyone to support you through this? What sort of help was available? I had home visits to assess my needs at home, which was quite handy, because I really had no idea what I would need. Was there any support that you wish you did have that you didn't get, perhaps? I would have liked some support for my family. They seemed to suffer quite a lot. I think I think the uh, the family were unsure how to treat me because I didn't want to be treated any different, really. But uh, I always had this fear that I wouldn't be, and I still don't today. What's helped you get to where you are today? Headway in my lifeline, been brilliant. The biggest thing I get out of Headway is building things like confidence, cognitive skills, and it gives me a big understanding of what's happened. And I found that really important, because when you have a brain injury, everything shatters your life. I know now why I get frustrated why I can't remember things. But Edway has made me aware of those and given me support to uh, put those things right. Colin Shepherd speaking with Greer Jackson. Recovering from a brain injury can be a very slow process. It takes months and in some cases years. But what does it involve and what outcome can a person realistically expect? A number of years ago, science communicator James Piercy suffered a severe head injury and he's had to rehabilitate himself. He has since made it his mission to use his experience to help other people to better understand the whole process, and he's with us to tell us about it. James, thank you for joining us. Tell us briefly, what happened to you? Um, I was just out for a normal drive, like everybody does every day. Um, A nail punctured the tyre of the car that I was in. It spun off the road and hit a tree. Uh, So, you know, in a minute, my life kind of changed. Um... I was treated by the East Anglian Air Ambulance at the scene, as we kind of heard described earlier on, and flown to Addenbrooke's Hospital. When I get to hospital, I'm put in a CT scanner, and they find that there's really quite a severe injury, uh, actually, to my brain. What does the scan look like? Which bit of your brain is affected? The most obvious thing you can see when you look at the picture, and I have looked at the picture a lot, it's quite a large area of bruising and bleeding, Um, Now, often in um, brain injuries, you might have uh, a hemorrhage kind of on the surface of the brain or just outside the membranes around the brain. And in most cases, you'd have surgery to remove that blood. Uh, My injury actually was intercerebral, actually inside the brain. So it wasn't treated. But it's very important to make sure that it's not going to get worse. So I have got a little hole drilled in the top of my head. Uh, and they use that to monitor the pressure and the and the blood flow inside the brain. I suppose we should emphasise here that because your skull is a sealed space, if the brain swells, there's nowhere for it to swell into because uh, it presses on the skull, and that can obviously compound the injury that's already been done. 
Well, that's right. And also that increased pressure then will restrict the blood flow to other areas of the brain. So we get this lack of oxygen to certain parts of the brain and then that's what causes these secondary injuries. When did you first become aware that you'd ended up out of a car accident and you were in hospital? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's not like in the movies where you suddenly wake up and, and realise what's going on. I had a prolonged period of post-traumatic amnesia, so I just couldn't store memories. So I don't remember waking up. I don't remember being told what had happened to me. I had a kind of more gradual realisation that I was in hospital and really not very well. And how has it affected you? Um, I've had to learn over the last four years or so that I need to slow down. I can't do things at the pace that I used to do. I can do everything that I used to do, but it takes longer and it's much harder work. Uh, so the biggest change I've had to make in my life really is to plan things. I need to know in advance what I'm doing and when I'm doing it. How long did it take you to realise the constraints that you were facing in terms of what you used to be able to do and what you now could do? Probably six, eight months but, yeah, my family would say he hasn't learned yet because I still push <laughs> myself too hard sometimes because I expect to be able to do things that I've done for, you know, for 40 years. What did you do to recover or rehabilitate yourself from your injury? Mostly I just had to try and do things. Uh, I had you know, quite a bit of support from um, professionals when I was in hospital and a little bit as an outpatient afterwards just really trying to do everyday things so making cups of tea and beans on toast and, and normal things what I had to really push myself to do is the things that were normal for me so trying to get back to work so using a computer cooking the kids dinner you know at the end of the day and a person who is pushing themselves to do things like you did what is that doing to the brain in order to promote recovery what we need to do really is relearn. And when we're learning things as, as young children, we're reinforcing these neural pathways in the brain, making connections uh, that the neurotransmitters will pass along from cells in the brain. And we're just reinforcing new pathways. So repeating actions continuously and pushing is, is hopefully cementing and reinforcing these new pathways in the brain and helping us to learn stuff. Some people characteristically get much better outcomes than others don't they have you any instinct for what makes that difference it's kind of a big unknown around brain injury really there's some fascinating research which came out in 2014 building on an idea of something called cognitive reserve uh, the idea of cognitive reserve is that some people have this kind of backup if you like enhanced ability to relearn things so this study used number of years of education as a kind of proxy measure for this cognitive reserve. The thinking being that the longer you've spent learning stuff, the better you ought to be at learning new stuff or relearning things. What they found was a really dramatic result. People who had done further and higher education, been through university, had a hugely increased chance of having made a good recovery after six months, something like six times the chance of a better recovery. So using your brain seems to help it recover after injury. In your case, have you been able to recover pretty much all your function, albeit with some limitation? You can you can hold down a job and go about your life in a happy, go-lucky way. I can do everything that I used to be able to do, but everything takes me a bit longer. Um, and I still suffer enormously from cognitive fatigue. So things that are very taxing on the brain will get me literally really very tired. So going to a supermarket, 
which is a very busy, noisy environment. You know, six million different kinds of baked beans to choose from and people banging trolleys into you. That will leave me really exhausted. So what would be your advice to somebody who may find themselves in the same position as you and what would you urge them to do? It's easy to say, just have a go and try and do stuff. But you need to give that caveat of don't try and do too much too soon. And a common story is pushing too hard, trying to go back to work too soon and not being able to cope and then having a huge kind of psychological effect of failure, really. So try things, do things, but accept that you will have limitations and you're never going to be back to the same person that you were before. It's really very unusual for people to make a 100% recovery and be the same as they were before their injury. But you can get close to it and you can embrace the new you uh, and run with that. James, thank you very much for joining us. That's James Piercy. He is from Science Made Simple. Thank you also to the other guests that made the programme possible this week. And if you'd like to find out more about the Air Ambulance and how to support their work if you're keen to donate to them, you can go to www.nakedscientist.com slash helicopter. And finally, it's time for our rather jammy question of the week with Karis Lestrange. She picked out this very seasonal question from listener Katie. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. Why is gooseberry jam red when gooseberries are green? This really baffled the Naked Scientists, so I put this thorny question to Dr Sharka Tomova, a food scientist at the University of Leeds. This question also really intrigued me. My mother often makes jam from green gooseberries and the colour is never red, but rather dark yellow or light orange. It's a colour change either way. We also had a mixed response on Facebook. Jodie Knight thinks it's just a difference in the colour of gooseberry used. And Mike Sharp asked, what even is a gooseberry? Well, a gooseberry is a round fruit with translucent hairy skin, which according to Endelaker is spooky. But why would green fruit give rise to red coloured jam? The answer as to why this happens is not so straightforward. To put it simply, it is the original fruit colour and changes in conditions during the process of jam making. When you make a jam, you mix sugar and fruit with pectin and the source of acidity and heat it until the chilling process starts. I've always heard of the word pectin, but what actually is it? Pectin is a plant polysaccharide or a type of long sugar, which is important in plant growth and defence against disease or parasites. Luckily for food lovers, it also happens to be a very good chilling agent, which can turn a mix of sugar and fruit into a tasty treat. Some fruits, like gooseberries, have a lot of pectin, but some need to have pectin added when you make jam from them. But this pectin gelling agent wouldn't give it a colour, would it? Um, no, but uh, gooseberries also contain pigments called anthocyanins, and it is these colours that make fruits like cherries red or blueberries blue. Interestingly, they are known to change colour when in different acidities or when they are heated and break down into smaller pieces. I see. It's the mixture of the change in acidity and these pigments. But when I make jam, I don't change the acidity, or at least not on purpose anyway. Actually, you might, if you are adding lemon juice, which is done for some fruits that don't have enough acidity, but not for gooseberries, as they are sour enough on their own. In this case... I think it's rather the fact that during cooking, anthocyanins come into contact with other pigments, pectin or any metal iron, which may be leached from the cookware. This makes the new combination with a different colour, and in this case it's red or dark pink. 
there could also be some other effects from heating the gem when more complex pigments get broken down to smaller pieces with different colour. This explains why the colour changes, but why doesn't it change colour every time? This could be down to differences in the exact composition of anthocyanins or maybe other pigments in the fruit, which is known to depend on the fruit variety, ripeness or properties of soil in which the gooseberries were grown. But my personal favourite explanation is the type of pan, which could lead to the right composition of metal ions. I hope this has given you some food for thought for next time you go gooseberry picking. Next week, we'll be answering this question that has been sent in by Anders. Why do power lines make so much noise? If you think you know the answer, or if you have a question for us, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook, you can tweet at Naked Scientists, or get stuck in on the debate on the forum. That's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And that is it for this week. Thank you very much to Greg Jackson for production, and do please join us next week when we're going to be taking on your science questions. You can send them in now to chris at thenakedscientist.com or tweet us and we'll put them into the programme. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith, and thank you at home very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.